My name is Barney Bush. Um, uh, I'm a Shawnee Cayuga Indian. Uh, I always say I'm from Oklahoma because my relatives, um, majority of my relatives, uh, live in Oklahoma. Yet I was born on the southern tip of Illinois, uh, what, in a part of what was our ancestral homeland along the Ohio River. And, um, as far as being called, uh, uh, an American Indian or a Native American or, uh, uh, any of the other terms, I've ceased to, uh, I reached a point in my life where the whole terminology thing, uh, about who I am has become almost insignificant. In fact, uh, I wrote a poem here, uh, not too long ago that addresses that. And if you don't mind, I'll just, uh, address that issue through, uh, an, a nun, uh, a nun edited poem. Uh, I was, uh, thinking about some things here not long ago and how it felt to be this kind of human being in America and uh, how uh, it is being here on the outside and how uh, a lot of my family from Oklahoma and, and from Illinois have uh, kind of turned their faces against me because they don't understand really what it is I'm doing. And uh, uh, that bothers me a lot. You know, uh, especially when it comes to family, it always bothers you that your family doesn't understand what you're doing. And uh, so instead, uh, they will build things up in their minds that make something much heavier than what reality is. If they don't know exactly what you're doing, me living away and not participating at home, you know, hunting, fishing and and uh, running around, getting caught, uh, uh, spend doing some time. Uh, having the, given them the privilege of coming and bailing me out. I shouldn't go on this way, I guess. <laughs> but it bothers me that, uh, that, uh, that the faces of your relatives get turned away from, you know, uh, for, uh, uh, in a way, you know, you grow in a way when you're living away from home and have experiences that they don't understand what you've gone through. It doesn't mean that that's changed in their relationship. Uh, changed my relationship uh, and how I feel with them, but it certainly changed their relationship, how they feel about me. And so with what's been going on at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe with the takeover by the uh, non-Indian people, and uh, um, I was thinking about a lot of things and uh, about being being an Indian. And when I, this for opening line is not... Uh, it refers to the uh, Institute. I don't attack this theme as an Indian, but as an artist, a poet, and a lover of confidence and good spirit, a human being free of all the names that take down weakened hearts. I am free, a man from this earth where the names he knows are written in the memory of creation in the lips of anticipation, living ever in the truth of oneself and fearless. There was a time, there is a time, and there will be a time, and the time is now. In the midst of a lie for the truth and the truth for a lie, I fully know both sides. We fully know both sides. The bottom line is where we will reside, by choice, by chance. Loving this earth, this homeland, is the only truth I know.
This land I see in the faces of children who remember from where they come. Who never forget the love for homeland and shapes and deep water, how the musk stays on the skin. I believe I am free to love my homeland, my own way of the spirit, that spirit in the faces of children and these other beings yet surviving in the earth. My name is not Indian, as I was taught to say and become confused. My name is human being. The time is now to gather the children in, the young faces wandering on the earth, time to get them out of the way, to teach them strength and courage and wisdom, the wisdom to step aside. The time is now, as many of my family turn their faces against me, because they think I tamper with beasts, as I do. But not without prayer and faith, and this vision of freedom, this vision of bringing in the flesh and blood, arms embracing, heads, <clears throat> heads held tightly to the chest, filling in the scars left by cutting lies, lies that have cut too many in half, in fourths and eighths and forever. The time is now to make as many rescues as we can. I begin with myself. Oh. Funny. <clears throat> We want to look at something that uh, that we we need to analyze. Uh, we we want to in the people's in the indigenous people's own words do as much as they can tell us the story of their encounter with the Europeans. What life was like before the Europeans? We don't have a concept of how you you related. One might say <clears throat> that within the framework of English logic that uh, it would be impossible for me in 1996 to remember what it was like when there were no uh, 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 colonizers in our homeland. But that's not true. Um, the, stories of, uh, the stories of our history did not begin in 1492. They began much longer, you know, thousands of years ago. So stories have always been handed down to us. The last 500 years are just a small time in our history in this land. This is just a small time in our history, uh, a small inter, uh, interruption in which, uh, uh, like with any interruption in a people's natural evolution, uh, that uh, we need to learn from. We need to learn desperately from this time because this time is not like any other time. But how I can remember what it was like is through the history of our, uh, of the stories of my grandparents and, and people before them. You know, uh, one of the things that my grandmother's sisters always made certain of, they repeated the stories to me over and over and over as if it were an act of desperation. They would ask me constantly, do I remember this? Do I remember that? As if they knew their time was short too on this earth and that 
because I was one of the people who was asking questions. And when you're growing up, the, the oldest people usually would tell kids, don't ask so many questions. Don't do that. For me, they would uh, do it a different way. They would say, uh, uh, why do you want to know this? And I'd say, I have a curiosity in my heart. And that seemed to be all they needed to hear. So they would tell me things, you know, tell me these stories. And then after a while, it became obsessive. They would tell them to me over and over. And when I would be alone by myself in the, in the, uh, I spent a lot of time wandering the hills and the hollows of the homeland. And, uh, I would think of these stories out there in the silence in places where there were no strip mines, where the water was still good, where the wind still had an uninterrupted flow, where there was still a feeling of freedom, a place where you felt like the, uh, uh, the colonizers had not polluted it, uh, even with their presence. You know, it seems like the foreigners can come through a piece of land and, and take a dump in it or something and it's polluted forever. It's as if they have, they're like uh, some kind of dogs in a way or a cat that likes to rub its uh, spore, you know, in holy places. Um, I would be alone at these times and I was always questioning, you know, the concepts of Christianity that we were taught at the, at the school, at the grade school where I attended and then, uh, the churches that we were forced to go, uh, to go to. And then I was always comparing that with, uh, how my grandparents and people, uh, traditionally looked at, uh, religion. And I knew one thing for sure that when we got out of the churches or out of the school, and I got back to the secret places or the private places in the hills. I was able to shed off this uh, false skin that was starting to build up on me. I could shed it off because the creator was saying, it was as if he were saying to me in my heart, uh, I'm here in this, in this private place. This is where I am. I'm not there in those buildings. Don't let those people fool you. I'm not there. And so in that connection, I would be there and imagine, deliberately imagine what it was like before these people had come onto the earth, before some of our bloodlines had been even uh, polluted by the, uh, uh, the, the captivity of those people in our history. And, um, I would imagine what it was like. And each time I would imagine, it would seem like all the beatings that I got in the grade schools would be lessened. I could free myself from the oppression by imagining what it was like before they come here. And it was a, it was a relief. And that's when I started to write, by the way, as well. I started writing uh, poetry at a very early age as an act of survival. And, um, there was a, there was a mystery upon the land during the days before the white man came to this earth. And it wasn't anything like any white man has ever written about it. It wasn't a place where Indian maidens swung from trees, you know, with bared breasts and, uh, much like the paintings of George Catlin, uh, where people uh, ran around in primitive splendor. It was just a world of great beauty and a world of harsh beauty in which you had to know what was happening or you could get killed. In such, in such beauty as uh, the creator makes upon this earth, you have to learn how to live with it or you'd learn how to uh, quick or you're quickly taken out. That's the way the life is on this earth. It's a harsh one, or it's a it's a one in which you learn and make it beautiful with uh, uh, your own imagination, with your own creativity, with your own respect for the creator and what's happened. In fact, you're even grateful for the hard times. That's probably a big difference between then and now, because the hard times uh, 
bear no honorable. They're not honorable hard times. They're not honorable. And it seems like maybe in the long run, our greatest uh, uh, need in this life among all the people who are oppressed is that we're probably going through the hardest times. And in learning how to, if we have to learn, if we can learn to survive this and still come out with our dignity intact, I believe we will have overcome the major obstacle in this life, the major inhumanity. The governments, tribal governments. Mm. Well, uh, in my own family, um, it was more, it was more like a family government or a government, uh, by, by the clan. We belonged to the clan of the Maqua or the, the bear. My grandmother was the, belonged to the Palatha clan, which was the eagle. And, uh, no clan is one, one is more honorable than the other. And one, uh, none of them less honorable than another. Uh, but, uh, representative of, uh, of how we believe we are descended. And, uh, in my mother's family, uh, they were governed by, uh, uh, kind of like a, almost the unspoken word. Yeah. The, uh, uh, grandparents were always in charge of things. Yeah. Uh, within the clan, the grandparents, the, the grandfather, the grandmother, when things got too heavy, they would, uh, you could hear people even arguing and going to it. And I could remember the many times that, uh, at each one of these arguments, my grandfather would at least once say, we let's do what's right. And then that would stop the argument for some reason. There's something in the tone of his voice when he said that that would stop it. And then people would have to start discussing what was right and what was wrong. And then that would lead into other arguments or other disagreements. And then they'd have to, he'd have to speak up again, but it's, they seldom offered advice. They were all other than to say, let's do what's right. And it kind of, I guess, gave the human being enough time to think about what was right, the right thing to do. In the larger framework of like uh, the nation or the tribe, the uh, uh, there was a council of men and a council of women that uh, comes from historical times, and uh, and which decisions were made about uh, the future of the tribe or about where thing uh, where planting was to take place or when uh, the green corn dance was to take place or when the 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 <clears throat> when the bread dances would begin and. Uh, when the hunting times began, uh, there were always people who followed, uh, uh, the, uh, in, in my mother's family, it was this way too. They followed the planting seasons by the, uh, by the stars and the moon and the, um, uh, the feelings they got about the weather. And, uh, there was, uh, there were five clans in my tribe and I'm from the, uh, uh, Kishpakafa clan and, uh, out of our clan came the warriors. Uh, although, uh, Da Kumsa, who was a Kishpakafa was considered to be a chief. He was never, uh, really a chief. The chiefs come out of another clan, uh, come out of the, uh, I think the Chelagathas and, uh, medicine people come out of the, uh, uh, Makujis 
and uh, uh, the uh, uh, peace chiefs, I think, come out of the uh, the Pequas, and uh, it's it, people had those orders were well designated. The order of tribal structure was well designated back during those days, and I, I feel probably less so today because of the acculturation of uh, into the American system of things. But the Iroquois, of course, uh, were the ones that Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin studied for the principles of democracy. You know, English logic refuses to acknowledge that, of course, because they still like to keep the image that natives were savages, you know, and that uh, we could never uh, create, come up with something uh, like the concept of democracy, that only a civilized people could do that. And, of course, then, too, we we break it down again to the basic uh, thing of what what is the logic of civilization anyway? What actually constitutes it and who makes those definitions? We have to, as a people, stop thinking about uh, uh, allowing what oppresses us to continue to define our language for us and what uh, what these words mean, like civilization and democracy. I mean, we're still we're still being victimized by definitions. Funny, could you could, you talked about uh, some of the uh, some of the culture, some of the structures that uh, the native people had that uh, were adopted uh, by uh, uh, by the Europeans. Right. Uh, before we get into the uh, clash of the two cultures, mm-hmm. um, let's talk about some of the things that the Europeans, and in particular. Uh, I'm looking at government. And right. The reason why I want to deal with that is because that lays out essentially the way that you, uh, your nations got along, the way people uh, got along with one another, and looking at the values and the highest principles within the concept of those values. And that's what I wanted you to speak to. Right. I want to speak to the way you related to one another as people and nations, what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then how that was adopted by Europe. Well, uh, when the uh, Iroquois uh, created the Great League of Peace uh, back in the, uh, oh, probably the 1600s or so, or, uh, the basis of it uh, is rooted in history older than that, of course. Um, but when they actually came together and, and uh, brought in the uh, Sixth Nation, the Tuscaroras, after uh, uh, they were... Uh, afflicted by disease and warfare in the South, they came up and uh, applied for admission into the Five Nations and were admitted. Uh, they spoke a similar language and uh, descended from the uh, from similar people. Um, <clears throat> they had set up a, 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 a design by which uh, tribes were represented um, according to their numbers, uh, Everyone having a vote, everyone having a voice, council meetings could go on for days, days and days, because everyone was given a chance to speak that wanted to speak. And you could sit and listen to these things for, you know, days on end, late into the night, people would fall asleep, and it would probably still go on, you know. Well, as time went along, uh, the Iroquois had uh, invited other tribes in under this uh, League of Peace. A lot of tribes didn't want to come in under it. And uh, but during this in- invitation to other tribes to come in, 
under this League of Peace, tribes from a lot of the Ohio Valley went up to hear what they were talking about, uh, to hear what this uh, uh, League of Peace was about. Now, the Shawnee Nation itself uh, always had a relationship with the Iroquois people, but we were never under the uh, jurisdiction of the Mohawks or the uh, uh, other five nations of the Iroquois. Although the history, the U.S. history writes about it, and they say that the Iroquois influence, you know, that they wanted to make sound, uh, the Iroquois sound as if they were like the Romans of uh, America, whose influence spread clear out to the Mississippi River and beyond, and they, that they had these great nation states that were under the influence of the uh, Iroquois nation. Well, of course, that was not so. In fact, <clears throat> people have, uh, white people have written about this for so long that a lot of tribal people have begun to believe this, that they were under some kind of great Romanesque influence during that period of time, and it just never existed like that. Although the influence of the, uh, the uh, Iroquois influence probably had more effect upon the way that white people thought than the, than the way that Indian people thought. Because it was not an unnatural way of uh, of thinking that a person had a right to speak. That was n one of the most elemental rules in every tribe. And at the same time, it was one of the highest respects that a human being have a chance to speak. And it was really insulting to, inter to, to interrupt this person. You didn't embarrass the person you were interrupting, but you embarrassed yourself. Um... And people never forgot it. They talked about it for days. They still do. I remember that from when I was a kid, you know, uh, to interrupt someone who was speaking. And uh, then when uh, this uh, uh, war between, uh, when the colonists went uh, to war against their own people, against their own country, they were trying to make it sound like they were one group of people who were at war with another group of people. Well, that was the most, that's one of the most stupid errors in history. That's just so stupid. <clears throat> here you have English fighting English. But because they had colonized coming over here to our country here, they were all of a sudden calling themselves Americans as if they were some kind of distinct ethnic group. You know? And they weren't. They were they're the same barbarians that uh, uh, that were coming over here. What they were doing was in revolution. They call it the Great Rebellion. They were in revolution against their own people. And, uh, in fact, uh, the reality of that is, is that they became traitors. They became traitors to their own government. They overthrew their own kingships and leaderships by, uh, this revolution. Although because they won the war, they now, they called it a revolution for, uh, uh, against tyranny. <laughs> See? But if they'd lost, they would have been hung as, as traitors. George Washington would have been hung as the traitor that he was. You see, because that's the reality of it. They betrayed their own country. They betrayed their own governments. And then what they did was uh, in visiting uh, with at these uh, uh, people's uh, at these longhouse people's uh, councils, they started writing out a form of government in which every human being was supposed to have a voice. And uh, there were to be representatives uh, from every one of these uh, districts uh, who come into uh uh, to speak for the people. And that's how this whole thing with the Senate and the Congress and the, uh, the U.S. government came together as a result of this. But in the, in, as time has gone on, 
what the it seems that the U.S. people have done. They've been influenced so many years by this uh, by the monarchy. They've never really got away from the uh, a king and queen syndrome. They still like the kings and queens of their own country. In fact, they still, uh, you know, they haven't separated from their own countries yet. They're constantly interested in what Princess Di is doing, what the Queen is doing, what Prince Charles is doing, all these people. And, you know, I don't, you know, any person who's not related, who could give a, you know, who gives a hoot to what these uh, people are doing? I don't care who they're sleeping with. It's none of my business. And what they're, you know, how much money they're spending on what and and who they're, you know, laying with on the beach or whatever. And they just spend so much time photographing these people who are of no, they're of no interest to me whatsoever. They're of no interest to anybody else in the world who is not influenced by this, uh, who's not been under a king and queenship kind of thing and this royal house. So they haven't separated from that yet. And they still seem to pass that logic along through uh, uh, the spread of English, uh, the spread of the English language, this class system. The, uh, the kings and queens, uh, versus the, 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 the lower classes. And the, you know, the development of the class system, of course, uh, there was class systems within tribes too, but they weren't set in the same way as the class systems of Europe. Uh, in some tribes, the lowest class soon became the, uh, the ruling class. Well, the Natchez people, uh, down in the Mississippi country had a society in which, uh, you could have, uh, uh, I think the anthropologists termed them, uh, what they call them? I've forgotten those, uh, technical words for their, I, I, I'm sure they didn't call themselves these anthropological terms anyway. They had a, uh, the, what was called the low class of people who served as, uh, uh, they, uh, worked as servants. Uh, they, uh, uh, cut wood, uh, gathered water. They did a lot of the hunting for the entire tribe and they made sure that the wealthy class uh, the class that was in ruling power were always fed, their houses taken care of, and that at the end of a certain cycle of years, they had elections, but the elections were held among the uh, the servant class, and then the ruling class of people were moved on. <laughs> yeah, they were moved on into another into another class of beings, whereas the the people who did all the wood chopping, the hunting, and everything uh, uh, became the elitists there. Yeah, it is. Okay, uh, when the European, and I'm, I'm going to come back to the uh, real foreign nation related point in a little bit, mm-hmm. a little later. But um, tell me what it was like when Europeans uh, came to this country, and what happened? What was that uh, clash of cultures? Again, uh, people probably, I know my students have gotten sick of me hearing the, uh, discussing this term logic. I've just overloaded them with this, uh, this, uh, deal with logic. But the logic system, of course, was different. You have to understand that native thought, native language evolved here for thousands and thousands of years. It evolved through the North Americas. It evolved through the South Americas. It evolved out into the island communities around the, uh, this part of the world without any influence from Europe, you see, without any influence. There is no tie. There is no technical tie. There is no uh, cultural ties with uh, English logic. None. For millions of forever, how long history has gone on from the beginning of time, if there was a beginning of time, uh, there is uh, there's no connection. So first of all, you have people 
you know, simply. Well, I'll tell you the story of uh, if you've ever gotten any of Columbus's journals and read what he's actually said in them, I think some guy finally put to, uh, some of the pieces of the journal were in Italy and some in Spain, some in a museum in, in uh, Mexico and some here in the United States. And I think some writer a few years ago, back in the middle 80s, finally accumulated uh, these uh, pages of the diary or the journals of the of this expedition and put them together into one book. While I was a fellow at the Newberry Library in Chicago back in, I think it was in 84, they had some pages from the Columbus Diaries in their, uh, uh, what's it called? The, the fish, what do you call it? Macrofish. And um, so uh, I asked the guy to uh, print them, uh, print those off for me. And I was reading them. They were written in Spanish, although Columbus was an Italian. And uh, something that Italians are proud of for some reason. And... Um, that uh he was writing about his encounter his view <clears throat> in uh of uh, the native people he first met down there in San Salvador he says that uh, oh by the way after he met the people he knew he wasn't uh, in India they traded with India for hundreds and hundreds of years before this expedition and they knew what people from India looked like so he had this, this is where the world, new world comes from. He says, no, this is a new world. Uh, El Mundo Nuevo, a new world. This is not India. He knew that. So anyway, he's referred to these native people. He says, uh, they're like children, como los niños. He says, they compete with each other in their generosity toward us. They bring us fresh water. They bring us fresh food. Daily, they bring us pearls from the ocean. He says, um, if, if God has a paradise on this earth where his children truly reside, these surely are the children of God. Los niños indios, E-N, capital D-I-O-S, the children in God. And the people aboard Columbus's ship started calling those native people los indios, those in God. Not the people from India, los indios. So the logic system changed from that point uh, because the Catholic Church couldn't accept the fact that these people would, would be children of God, people with souls. So they decided to stick with the term Indian as if uh, uh, Columbus was still uh, stupefied by uh, his landing on those shores. That uh, So we'll call them Indians. Even though it's a mistake, it's better than calling them Los Indios, those in God's, because we'll have to account for the next statement. Uh, why? Uh, when Columbus finished this uh, famous uh, statement of his in the uh, journals, he says, uh, these surely are children in God, period. They will make good slaves. What? Yes. Read the journal. They will make good slaves. Based on your study, Mm-hmm. I'd like to know what was the real relationship between the Africans and your people here in the Whether the relationship was either good or bad. We need to know what was that relationship and was it parallel? Was it, did it put the Indians out of great peril or did it 
provided it with these Indians, uh, quote unquote, with a sense of support. What would that mean? Okay. Of course, you have to understand that a lot of what I know of this relationship historically, I've had to read as well as uh, hear it from people because you hear one thing, because uh, a lot of the people of uh, black and Indian ancestry that uh, uh, from Oklahoma were influenced by that period of uh, uh, the removal days. Okay. Now, after Columbus, Columbus is, you know, uh, our encounter with the, uh, the American or the Europeans uh, probably didn't happen until, you know, the 1600s because the tribes in the resistance on the East Coast kept them at bay for a long time. And then as they gradually fought their way, the Americans fought their way West and or murdered their way West, the uh, tribes uh, who resisted, uh, who was, had strong warrior societies were able to keep them at, uh, uh, at certain levels, at certain distances for a while until diseases and all the other things took over. Well, after they started bringing the Africans over uh, to help them build their empire, uh, they had brought people, you know, fresh out of tribal societies in Africa. And a lot of, of what has not been written that I have heard through uh, family stories is the uh, the warrior societies of uh, people they had to bring over here, literally locked in chains, because not because they were afraid uh, uh, of them escaping, but they were afraid of them killing them. They brought some 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 uh, elegant warrior type people over here. They had to keep them in chains because these people weren't. You know, they were ready to die. You know. The, uh, <laughs> the, uh, relationship was is that as soon as many of these people were unloaded on the shores over there and they understood that they were in another land and that there were native people already there, once that connection was made, then, uh, many of these people, as soon as those chains were unlocked and they, they were allowed to go to sleep at night, the next morning they were gone. They were gone. They hit the swamps, dogs after them and everything, but they had this, uh, they had such elegant warrior people. They were able, there were no dogs that caught these people. So in effect, what happened, hundreds of native people fled to among native communities. And the most famous, of course, uh, being among the Seminoles and the Creeks and the Cherokees. And what happened, there was so such a large influx of, uh, African native people coming in among them that what happened was, is that they were able to establish their own communities. And what they did, then they, it was kind of like a mix of African and native. Uh, the Africans acclimated quickly to the southeast region, and they built houses and built a tribal structure just like, uh, say, the Seminoles did, you know, platforms above the land, you know, to keep the water from coming in your house when there were floods or keeping those damned old copperheads and water moccasins out of your, <laughs> out of your sleeping area. But... Uh, what happened, too, they brought a lot of seeds with them. We had talked about that earlier. They brought a lot of plants and things with them, so they were able to intermingle a culture together, which turned into a, a very sophisticated kind of thing, you know, because uh, I think uh, a lot of tribes get upset at home, but we have a, we have the what's called the stomp dance, and uh, uh, a lot of uh, studiers of our culture think that the stomp dance actually originated uh, from Africa, that... Uh, uh, 
uh, that the origins of that came from the Africans who uh, they think because that when people were made prisoners and they had to work on the chain gangs, they would have these songs that would, it's kind of like a call and repeat kind of thing. And uh, But a lot of our tribal people say, no, we had that already. So there's that argument over whether who introduced what. And uh, people were saying, well, the uh, Africans got it from the Indians. You know, so there's that little cultural thing going on. Oh, sure. The uh, It's kind of hard saying it in the daytime. There's, there's this little kind of thing that goes, uh, let's see. So what happens in the midst of that song is, is that, I mean, this is just a shortened version of it. This could go on all night. But when you're doing the yon away, then you go yon away, yon ho, yon away, yon ho, yon ho, yon away, yon ho, yon ho, yon ho, yon ho, yon. And then it goes on like that until you actually get caught up in the fervor. I, mean, I could bring myself into it right now, but <laughs> it's really an entrancing, an entrancing music. And I'm sure it's got influence from both Africa and, and Native America, of course. But we call it the stomp dance and uh, stomp dance songs. And it's 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 still held every night in the summer through Oklahoma, especially weekends. A lot of young people uh, go to those things. They're closed to non-Indians usually. Uh, but people from around the areas of African and Indian ancestry are, are always seen at the grounds. And many of the call leaders are uh, are uh, uh have uh, both backgrounds in their ancestry. And of course you can, people so individually, ethnically proud, one might get angry over the other one, accusing the other one of not being a full blood this or a full blood that, you know? And uh, so, uh, but it's evident. Yeah. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful experience. They hear those sounds and those long hollow, those uh, hollows at night, you know, I hear the voices echoing off the ridges. So the cultures are, Yeah, I think historically, you know, people are the uh, English logic's always talking about our, the terrible wars that we had among each other, and they emphasize those kinds of things as an act of separation, you see, and uh, and to establish their uh, concept that we uh, lived in states of savagery, which is all nonsense, because uh, 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 people did have uh, animosities toward each other a long time ago, and they took care of them as people saw fit. The great uh, scenes that you see happening in Africa right now is not the result of ancient feuds of tri- intertribal uh, conflicts, but it's the uh, modern-day conflict of uh, uh, people being stifled by this whole oppressive kind of uh, thing that's happening in the world. People are jumpy all over the world. It's like we've all caught some kind of virus, you know, some kind of deathly virus from this whole part of the world. And so now instead of like Small family feuds and inter, uh, some intertribal feuds. We're engaging now in mass in massacres upon one another. We're uh, 
we're doing all kinds of crazy things uh, among each other now that we never, that people didn't do historically. And yes, um, I think that uh, uh, in uh, in older times, I think that I think almost everyone wanted to live. Uh, you know, they wanted to, everybody wanted to mess with their own garden. In our tribal communities among the Shawnee Nation, we had what was called a community garden in which everybody, uh, uh, participated in the farming of the fields, you know, like the, uh, cornfields. And they had uh, huge, huge cornfields in the Ohio River bottoms. But every little family's, uh, house had their own private, uh, uh, had their own private garden where they raised tomatoes and, and, you know, corn, beans, and potatoes, and just the, all the common foods that you think of as being existent in the world from beginning of history. Well, they were in this world, but they weren't in Europe. Uh, and people just basically wanted to live, you know, sensibly with one another. It's like the word civilization. Uh, people uh, desired to be civil with one another. Although every tribe, most of the tribes, had warrior societies. And, uh, people to protect and, and actually to govern, uh, conflicts within the tribe itself more, more than just to, uh, go to war against another tribe. Although there were tribes who, uh, uh, who, uh, whose major engagements were warfare. They prided themselves on being warriors. They were a warrior nations. They were warrior nations. Historians write and say that the Shawnees were warrior nations, you know, that we were people who always indulged ourselves in fighting and resisting. And, uh, I don't know that I feel that way so much or that I feel that I've inherited that concept as much as I have that we were resistors, that we were always at war with nonsense. And of course, uh, English logic would say, well, everyone would, you would say that, of course, you know, because, you know. <laughs> yes. Mm. Oh, here we go, yeah. Yeah, that, uh, uh, yeah, historical indictment is a good term for it. Uh, I could almost just say, you know, I'm so tired of listening to this nonsense that I'm, I just refuse to talk about it anymore. However, the English logic thing comes into play again here. Uh, for example, that we were not doing anything with the land. We're always doing something with the land. Always. If, if we're just sitting there, we're doing something with it. We're walking upon it, or we're standing upon it, or we're looking upon it, or we're listening upon it, or we're tasting upon it, or we're sensing upon it, uh, or we're contemplating upon it. That's what the earth was for. You know, people get this idea, you know, uh, this whole biblical notion has just screwed people's minds up from coast to coast. You know, these interpretations from, uh, from Hebrew logic to English logic. Uh, what people actually meant, you know, those, uh, this group called the Jehovah's Witnesses have, uh, 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 taken the Bible and they've translated it 
word for word, you know, from uh, uh, ancient Hebrew to modern English. Every word except the name of God, of course, they can't come out and actually say Yahweh instead of Jehovah. They had to change his name, you know, to keep that little bit of power over the over the word there. And uh, uh, but for that translation, that book is good. You know, to see what is really said literally in the Bible about man's orders to uh, uh, dominate the earth. It doesn't say destroy the earth. It doesn't say to go and destroy and to strip mine and to pollute the waters and to have that kind of, of dominion over the earth. There's always two sides. The biblical stories, all the uh, stories of our religions always have two sides, one a good, one an evil. And so what uh, people have done, they've took in the most evil side of the stories of the ancient Hebrews to uh, uh, portray them as, as something positive, you know, so they've destroyed the earth and saying that they've done it because God has commanded us to when he didn't. And there's no saying about that in the, in the Bible. So people have misread this whole religious thing from the very beginning and have taken it and made a whole new religion out of it. Now, there are no denominations mentioned in that Bible either. There are no denominations, no substantiation for any of them in there. Uh, yet at the same time, what's happened is there has been this logic, division in logic, division in thinking. The Europeans were obsessive about control. English, the Romance languages that are used in Western Europe, have an obsession to control things, to own. Okay. When they come over here and made deals with people, they assumed that their logic was a dominant logic and everyone in the world should know what it means to own something. Well, a native person, uh, uh, generally speaking, a native person doesn't believe that he or she owns anything. We don't have the concept of like massive ownership. Maybe you don't fool with my gun. You know, if I'm, it's gun I used for hunting. You don't mess with my bow. You don't mess with this unless you ask. You don't be messing with the stuff like that that we survive with unless there's a reason for it. You just don't take my bow out or my gun out and play with it. Cause I've gotta, I gotta be, I want it, I want to know that it was, it's gonna be like I last left it. I know, I need to know how to depend upon that, on that tool. And, uh, it's like with anything at home, anything that's kept sharp, you know, knives and things. Uh, one of the things that I remember my dad being obsessive about when we were kids was that, all right, which one of you's had this knife and, and left it like this? Which one of you, I mean, which one of you kids has been fooling with these things here, taking them out and been throwing them in the dirt or whatever, been uh, playing stretch or something or, or throwing, uh, digging with these knives and they're not sharp now. The last time he saw them, they were sharp and he wanted to skin something with it and it wasn't available to, you know, so he had to take time out to do resharpen the knives. So we learned real quickly what we would do. We'd get duplicates of knives around and we would, uh, as we grew older and we'd leave our knives as if they were his knives and he would think he'd left his knives dull. We got him confused. So he'd sharpen our knives for us and then we'd give him back his old one. So he... <laughs> <laughs> Get that old man shot in the knives all the time. Anyway, anyway, the whole logic system was different. So when people, when these uh, English people were talking about buying land from Indians, people couldn't, they, you couldn't translate that. You cannot translate a logic that is not understood. You can't translate ownership in, in English, uh, the English logic of ownership 
it can't be translated into native logic. Well, it can be now because, but not native logic. It has to be communicated through English logic. So we had a lot of things to learn about how they, those people thought. They did too, but they refused to learn those things except how it would aid them in the conquest of this land. You see, they learned how to, you know, to plant these old stories. I'm so sick of this Thanksgiving crap of, you know, planting and pumpkin pies and turkeys and all that kind of stuff. You know, that was, that's, that's, people need to read their history, need to read history. What really happened? Cause people across America have kids in classrooms cutting out little feather bonnets and, and pilgrim hats and crap like that to, uh, say this is how the Indians and the pilgrims got together on Thanksgiving. That's such nonsense. You know, six months after that little event took place, they were spreading smallpox among those tribes. You know, they were all dead within a year. The whole, yeah. Yeah. Well, we're all right. We'll get into this. All right. Then, uh, you know, the logic system failed. People could not understand the deals they made. They couldn't understand the idea that you would have to sign a piece, that signing a piece of paper was a commitment that it was a promise when your word was a promise. But you see, those people, the English didn't have that kind of honor among them. They still don't. Maybe individually, friend to friend, they do. But as a, as a cultural group, they don't have that kind of honor where the, your word is good. Are you saying, are you saying, sir, that among the Indians, there was no need for a contract? There was no, no, no. A written contract. A written con- no, there was no need for a written contract. What people did was record history in in certain ways by writing on uh uh skins or on birch bark uh, the they made paper out of birch bark or uh they would write uh, uh an uh, uh, they would write an event into uh you've heard of the famous wampum belts they would write events that took place when people uh, shook hands over an event it wasn't the contract itself it was the recording of an event it was a piece of history you see in essence, it's true weight. Yeah, see, that uh, the logic of, of, of going back on your word didn't exist. You have to understand what logic actually means uh, in, in, in any language. Though it's a way of thinking. If I promised you that uh, I would bring you a sack of uh, turquoise from the southwest, and I got up here and realized I had left it on the table or had forgotten it, I would deliberately not call you. I'd be too embarrassed. I wouldn't call you. I would avoid you. I'm, I'm telling you this now for the first time. <laughs> I would avoid you like the plague if I had made a promise like that and had actually, it would be too embarrassing. And it's still in, in many ways, it still does. You know, it still does. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And because I, I expect it to be practiced and people expect me to practice it, then I expect it. And when I see people not follow that way, I'm not disappointed now as I, my grandparents would be because I understand that another logic is at work in their minds. You know, one that's called dishonor. See, we humans only have two qualities about us. We have honor and we have dishonor. And, uh, uh, when the when these Europeans were trying uh, were talking with people, there were always see English is kind of like a strange kind of thing, and it was really confusing because people in English could mean something from their heart, but they never say what they meant or seldom said what they meant. 
like uh, uh, I think it was Red Cloud or uh, Sitting Bull who once said, the, the white men made us many promises, but they kept only one. They promised to take our land, and they took it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. How, how did they go about that? With your, with your resistance? Yes. Well, first of all, there was a, a resistance of, uh, a social resistance. Uh, uh, tribes couldn't understand what was going on. So when they uh, called these people at their, uh, to, uh, putting them on the spot for their word, it made them angry, made the white people angry. Cause you're calling them on their honor, you see. You're calling them to, uh, you're calling them to the stump to say, well, now this is what you said. You were only going to be here, wanted to use this place for a little while, and we need it back. We need it back now. So they, you know, invented eventually this word called Indian giver. You gave us something, you know, and then you come and take it back. Well, that was so stupid. It was like, you know, it, we might as well call it, uh, instead of Indian giver, let's call it white liar. You know, you were, you were supposed to be there. Uh, you said for, uh, uh, you wanted to stay here and keep your family here for a couple of summers till you raised enough food and hunted so you could move on and you'd get on out of our country. But now you've been here for 10 years. You know, and you're bringing more of your family from Europe. You're bringing more people here and you're scaring away the animals and you're cutting down all the trees. You're clear cutting the forest. You're clear cutting. I mean, you're taking whole forest down. We've never seen anything like this. What, what is it that you're doing? Uh, keep your promise and move on out of here now before it's too late. And these people are saying, well, you gave us this land. Oh, no, the land was not given. You can't give what you don't own. You can't give it. I remember reading about old Joseph of the Nez Perce back in 1877 when uh, he was resisting the uh, uh, the taking of the Wallawa Valley in uh, Oregon. And uh, when the soldiers came in to move him out, he says, well, I've never sold this land. And uh, what the government had done has gone to some lesser chiefs, you know, and uh, bribed them with alcohol or money or whatever. So everybody can be bribed in, in certain societies who have low self-esteem. Uh, and said, uh, who had been, and by the way, people who had been, uh, weighted down with the, uh, with the, uh, missionaries, with this thing of Christianity and Satan. And said, uh, Joseph said, well, I've never sold this valley. And I said, yeah, but here's, uh, here's the signatures on this treaty, uh, or on this, uh, land sale agreeing to sell this land. And Joseph said, well, if, uh, if I've sold this land, it's like if I had a horse out here and you come to buy my horse and I said, I refuse to sell it. And my neighbor over here says, come on over here. I said, I'll sell you Joseph's horse. He said, if I've sold this valley, it's how it was, uh, this was how it was bought. You had to go to one of my neighbors to buy my horse. And you know, that logic, see, in the English logic, that probably doesn't mean anything. I mean, that's just as good a deal as anything as long as you got a signature down. There's just no honor in that logic. So it eventually did lead to the resistance. It didn't lead to, uh, like, barbaric warfares against the white people. It was a resistance. It was a resistance as surely as the French were in resistance against the Nazis of Europe or against any of those oppressive regimes over there, except when they're taking over somebody else's country, then they call it uh, uh, fighting the savages or uh, uh, making slaves out of savages. Um. So then the warfares did begin. The resistance did begin. And the greatest resistance uh, was overcame by uh, smallpox, by the diseases, because they would uh, 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 they divided tribes up, the English and the French and the Dutch and the Germans and all this outfit. 
divided tribes up according to uh, who was the traders, who the traders, T-R-A-D-E-R-S, were among these tribes. And um, so they would have uh, tribes in competition, you know, with uh, finally developed the sense of competition like the fur trade, you know, the beaver pelts and uh, uh, exchanging for uh, uh, steel tomahawks, steel hatchets, steel bowls, uh, pots to cook in uh, that were made of iron. Um, and, uh, decorative kinds of things, you know, uh, white people, uh, uh, often belittle the fact that Indians traded huge things for glass beads and things, which were a commodity, you know, among Indians, because we didn't, uh, use glass beads and first sight of them, they were valuable, you know, we didn't know that there's billions of them in uh, Europe and, uh, uh, people liked those kinds of artistic things, you know. If people could have limited those days uh, into trading kinds of things, into positive kinds, something good com- could have come out of all of this, but they didn't. They uh, insisted upon taking things and taking things without uh, 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 without uh, permission. And so it did lead to warfare, the terrible wars of the king, what was called the King's Philip's War. And eventually what happened was is that we as native people have always fallen short near the end when we had a chance to actually mop up and clean up this whole infectious mess of European invasion, we would be kind at the end. We would go into this humane stage when that was the wrong time for humanity to take place. That was the wrong time. We should have gone ahead and cleaned that that mess of infestation out, completely out, because it has no regard for us as a human beings. We didn't even need to treat them as warriors because we always had respect for good fighters. They weren't even good fighters. Uh, physical fighters, they weren't worth a damn as physical fighters. They couldn't stand up to most Indians anywhere. Uh, but as, uh, as uh, wholesale destroyers, they were masters. They would spread those smallpox blankets, use those in trade that, that had died on uh, their own people who had, uh, had smallpox, and they would trade those to Indians. And we didn't have any... See. History, anthropologists have written, we didn't even have common colds here. That comes from a virus out of Europe. Can you imagine not having the common cold? That was a surprise to me. I just learned that a year or two ago. Uh, but we didn't have a smallpox. We didn't have any of the diseases. I think the worst thing we had over here was arthritis. Well, go, go ahead. Um, to develop well, it killed, you know, the, the, those diseases wiped out entire tribes of people, you know. And what the, see, the diseases and Christianity. See, a lot of people were so willing, were such a humble people anyway, and had such respect for the earth and everything. When the Christians came in and started talking about this and, and reading about this uh, God of the Bible, they only read the good things at that time, you know. They would read actual things, you know, like where Jesus sets above, or God sets above the circle of the earth and calls all the stars by their names, you know. And that, uh, he, uh, he knows when even the sparrows fall and he references to the eagles all the time in there for as the lightning sh- shines from the east to the west. So shall it be with the coming of the son of man. Wherever the body is there, the eagles will be gathered also. You know, it was always in reference to things that Indians could understand references to the cedar, which is a, a sacred, uh, uh, a sacred plant among native people as it was among the ancient Hebrew people. And uh, I even threatened to humble cities in the Bible by cutting down their cedars. I think Lebanon was famous for that. God told him, said, if you don't mind us, I'm going to have your cedars laid low. You know, so that was the threat to them that uh, uh, straightened them up. 
their love for their cedar trees. Um, but here in this country, there was no such love for this land uh, from the uh, immigrants. They came here to destroy. They came here to take and to get rich. That whole uh, evolution of uh, that has unloaded itself in a historical context that they were looking for religious freedom. That is such crap. That is such pure, pure crap. You don't come here saying you're looking for religious freedom and use the Bible as a textbook because there's nothing in there in that biblical book. There's nothing in there that gives you permission to look for religious freedom by killing off the earth and the people. There's nothing in there that validates that. So don't tell me about this religious freedom. You know, you've got to argue that with, you've got to account with that with whatever it is you call God, because that doesn't happen in this book. How, how many natives of They estimate that, uh, the anthropologists estimate that north of Mexico, what is now Mexico, that north of Mexico, there were approximately 27 million people living. In the worst estimations of, uh, of numbers of people before Columbus came, the anthropologists on the other end of the scale like to say that maybe there were a million native people. <laughs> See, that's the, to justify that, uh, well, they really didn't kill that many people off. But the uh, anthropologists who are actually into the study of human beings have uh, found so many uh, sites across North America. There were so many trade routes and things that could confuse the population figures, too, because the thousands of people came up out of South America to trade here. But uh, an estimate, a conservative estimate, is 27 million people north of Mexico. By 1900, by 1900, about four, 400 years later, the estimated population of the native people north of Mexico was 320,000. 320,000. Yes, the census in 1900. Yeah. From so many millions, and you have to think of all the millions. That wasn't just 26 million, uh, 700 people killed, but millions beyond that over that 400 years in diseases and people continually being born, people continually dying. Yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. It's, it wasn't a secret plan that the U.S. had. I mean, their generals bragged on it. Even their presidents. I think it was Andrew Jackson. Well, uh, it, are you familiar with De Tocqueville, who wrote uh, Democracy in America? Uh, he did this visit from France uh, to study democracy and its effects upon civilization and how it was working in, in, on the American frontier. Uh, it's called Democracy in America, and it's called. It's got a subtitle too. Uh, uh, anyway, his uh, his uh, he was talking about how it was working among all the immigrant communities here, and he says, as for the Indians, as for the native people of the Americas. They will most certainly have to die. I mean, that was his conclusion. They will most certainly have to die. That they could not be, uh, he was certain that we couldn't be acculturated into what was quote civilized, uh, concepts. Uh, the man was a fool anyway because he had no idea where democracy originated. Uh, uh, had, he didn't even study that because see, these people have an arrogance in their logic systems that does not permit them to learn from anyone other than themselves. I mean, it's a very incestuous uh, logic system. Very incestuous. 
and uh, it has bred a lot of terrible concepts upon the world. Um, yes, diseases and religion. I mean, people as, uh, take, for example, the Conestogas and the Susquehannocks in uh, what is now called Pennsylvania area. As soon as they became Christians, they lined them up on the walls around the church in there, and systematically, they said that they were uh, taking these stone hammers, the white people were, and uh, their hands got so tired of killing people, knocking them in the head. And here's these Indians standing up against the walls like the Jews did. This is one of the things that kind of makes me angry. They knew they were being killed, but because they were so confused with religion, they thought that they were going to die and go directly to heaven. That's what they they were being told. They would be killed right there on the spot and go directly to heaven. Now, that's in the Christian logic, but there's nothing in the Bible that says that's going to happen. They say in the Bible, the Bible says when you're dead, you're dead. You're going to lay on the ground and wait for a resurrection. So where they get that thing, oh, little Johnny's gone to heaven or gone to hell, uh, when they, as soon as they die, is not substantiated in Bible logic. You're talking about atrocities. Let's talk about some of the atrocities. You want to dwell on this atrocity, all right. Yes. Well, this is really hard to talk about because it's, it's, it's hard to even, you know, it's hard for me to talk about, uh, uh, such barbarian, uh, behavior coming from an entire race of people. And it's kind of like a condemnation for which, you know, a society with a logic system like the Americans have, um, it wants to get even with you for pointing out uh, its disease. It, it wants to get even. That's one of the things that we Native people are going to have to do around this earth. We're going to have to stick together because as time increases, these people are going to be more and more down. If you think they're done with South Africa, if you think those Boers are done with South Africa, you're crazy. You're crazy. You think African lives are going to be safe in South Africa after all those years of apartheid and, and Apartheid in Africa and apartheid in the U.S. The apartheid that exists in the U.S. is uh, is little talked about. But the atrocities, the murders, the massacres, you know, people as soon as, I think it was King Philip, they call him King Philip. He was, uh, uh, I think his real name was Opechankanof, uh, from the, I think it was Narragansett or Wampanoag, one of those tribes of, out here in the east, that uh, after the war, and they killed him and his uh, two kids, executed them. They sent one of them off down, his family off into the West Indies as slaves. And uh, I think they cut his head off and put it on a stake and carted around Boston Square. And one of the uh, uh, trophy, you know, one of the things that they often bragged about when they, uh, uh, after the, the warfare started heavy duty and they were going out and, and burning villages and, and killing women and kids. And uh, our word, the Shawnee word for the English is, is Shemeganah. And the Shemeganah refers to the uh, refers to the saber, the long knife, but it refers to the motion that it makes as it cuts off or cleaves through the head of a child. That's what the word means. Sh- this is Shemeganah. And that's how we know them. And... Uh, um. The barbarianism, uh, they were always planning times to attack villages when there were no men around, of course. That's in the logic of the way white people fight, is to uh, kill off the women and kids. And when you say, was it systematic? Of course it was systematic, because their uh, generals, even O.O. O. Howard, I think, of the U.S. military, 
uh, said, uh, to kill the women and children, you must, he says, because nits make lice. Yes. So you must kill off the women and kids. And uh, that it was an honor to do so. In fact, uh, the trophies put on Indian heads back during the colonial days, you got $100 for a man's head, $50 for a woman's, and $25 for a baby's. Yeah. So that was the price on the human head. And uh, so that's how they started, uh, uh, their own people started bringing in heads as trophies to collect the bounties on of, of tribes who were in resistance toward them. So uh, uh, when they bribed some other tribes to uh, uh, that had uh, community uh, feuds with, with the warring tribe, with the tribe that was in resistance, they uh, would get them drunk or get them in debt to them. And uh, especially you get an Indian in debt during those days and you have him. You you control his life if he owes you. That's in the logic system. If I owe you, I'm indebted to you until I pay you back. And uh, uh, they did this, you know, with blankets or guns or whatever and trade to people. And then they would say, well, you can pay it off by going over here and killing off uh, some of these guys and bringing back their heads, you know, and then you get to pay here. And then you can come over to the trading post and pay me back. So that started that kind of warfare and caused us to start killing and, uh, upon one another more severely. And uh, they were bringing in so many heads that the generals uh, said, uh, stop bringing in these heads because uh, we'll use an old uh, Irish-Welsh uh, practice of scalping. Uh, just bring in the top part of the hair, bring the skin of the head, which is the practice that was done commonly in Europe. And uh, so the, then the practice of scalping began. And for some reason, they, well, not for some reason, but in the English logic reason, this was, uh, became an Indian custom. When in reality, it was not an Indian custom, but it was a custom applied to Indians. A white custom applied to Indians. And then, uh, the warfare, uh, uh, branched out, caused tribes to split up, caused tribes, uh, people wanted to, this land thing was so heavy duty with Indian people. Um, the Iroquois uh, uh, wouldn't side with the French, and the uh, Hurons wouldn't side with the uh, English, and and uh, the the Shawnees didn't want to side with anybody. We didn't want to side with either the English or the French. And then as the war, because the tribes, we could not nationalize as we should have. Daikumsa, the one the whites called Tecumseh, who was a Shawnee and from my clan, uh, or I'm from his clan, uh, that. Uh, uh, tried to nationalize tribes. He realized very early in time that if the tribes did not nationalize uh, against this insane logic that was taking over our homelands, that we were doomed. And uh, he went from all the way from the southern tip of Florida up into northern Canada, all the way west to the uh, Monta- uh, what is now the Dakotas, and tried to nationalize people. But a lot of the tribes who had never encountered the uh, Europeans up to this point I couldn't see any reason for joining in this resistance. They didn't realize the impact of it. Their logic system did not believe that anything this horrible was happening. But then there was uh, other tribes, too, that he went down south to visit with the Choctaws. And there was this one guy, one uh, leader of of a famous tribe down there that said, well, uh, we don't need to go to war. Look what they give us. And he was showing his uh, fancy French cuff shirt and his uh, silver bracelets and and uh uh copper pots and things in the village see and and earrings and 
all kinds of real gorgeous looking uh, trade goods. And he said, uh, see, we don't have any confude with them. Uh, we, they give us good things. You know, we're at peace with them. And, uh, uh, this guy, uh, uh, two years later, they took him, uh, the Americans brought him to Washington. And when he got to Washington, he immediately started drinking, ran up a $2,000 bar bill at this one place here and then died of alcoholism. And, uh, some of the people thought that, uh, you know, that this was the way uh, that he got paid back for his uh, belief in the, uh, in the American logic system in that, uh, word of, uh, world of the greedy. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, Dakumsa was unsuccessful in getting the tribes to unite the Creeks and, and some of the Cherokee, uh, bands and, uh, uh, in the North, uh, bands of the Chippewas and the, and the Miamas and the Delawares and, and some bands of the Winnebagos all saw this and Potawatomis saw this need to unify. But, uh, we had never, the concept of nationalization had never occurred before up in this northern country because we've always been independently, uh, uh, independent, independent survivalist, I guess you would say, that, uh, uh, that peace was best maintained in small groups, you know, because people didn't live in tremendously large villages back in those days, except maybe part of the year. Usually during the winter, people lived in small communities, you know. Well, plus it also uh, seems to, to suggest that uh, the natives as a whole never knew an enemy uh, like the enemy that is the Oh, absolutely not. There had never been anything. The closest to that was uh, when they asked how the um, uh, Pizarro, or not Pizarro, but um, Cortez and that bunch was, you know, they were always bragging in history how he and 200 men uh, were able to conquer the whole civilization of the Aztecs in Central America or in Mexico. Well, the truth behind that was is that the Aztecs, of course, were beginning a process of taxation against thousands and thousands of other tribal people in the valley of, in the Mexico Valley. And, you know, mainly taxation kinds of things in the process of you donate part of your harvest to the, uh, uh, to the city of, uh, of Mexico to, uh, what was it called? Not Teotihuacan, but what was the original Mexico called? Maybe it was Teotihuacan. And, uh, uh, those people were upset at having to divide up their harvest with, uh, the uh, Montezuma. And, uh, uh, they didn't like that. So when the Spanish came in and the first time that the Spanish came into Mexico, of course, the uh, Aztecs drove them out when they saw that they were only coming in for gold and everything, didn't want to talk or trade. And Cortez got sent back to Spain. It wasn't until his second voyage that uh, he was able, he saw, he had seen how things operated over there. So they'd bribed a, a woman, of course. <laughs> Always got to be this uh, woman who enjoys uh, sleeping with the enemy. And uh, I think uh, her name was Doña Marina. And, uh, who had learned in the meantime to speak Spanish and, uh, spoke several of the dialects of all those tribes in the valley down there. Now, Americans want to hero worship her now and make her, because she was an Indian, uh, a, uh, icon. Right. Uh-huh. But, uh, in, in looking at her realistically, you know, she didn't, she may have not realized under the, the duress of the times that she was actually betraying. And, um, so what Cortez and that bunch did was bribe all these people who were being, uh, who were uh, mad at the uh, Montezuma 
for this taxation of part of their crops that uh, when he actually entered Mexico, the, the village, the, the city of Mexico, Teotihuacan, that, uh, he not only had his 200 soldiers, but he had over 10,000 Indian allies, you see. But history likes to write that he and his brave 200 were able to go in and conquer this vast civilization, which they never could have done without uh, uh, inciting all of these uh, native people to follow him. Because that's how they actually overcame those uh, high civilizations. Yes. Yeah. Words. Absolutely. Do you feel that European eyes and European words reflect the same thing? It can't. Indian, no. Uh, the Indian never was allowed to tell their own story. Do you feel that they are telling their story? Of course not. Uh, the, uh, how people really want to, uh, uh, to do this is, uh, uh, when people, when the Americans write stories, they of course write, uh, they want to do research for books in which to publish in order to make money. So they'll, uh, their research is never that, uh, 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 far reaching. And even when the most hardy researchers are at work to study the history of how Native Americans perceived the world, it was always done through a need to control that history. It was always done through a need to have uh, uh, history put within the framework of, of this is the American culture. This Indian history is a part of our culture. But we're not a part of the American culture, you see. We're not even the first Americans. People want to say, oh, you're the first, you're the really true American. No, we're not. We're not true Americans. Americo, Amerigo Vespugi. And those people who gave the names here are the real Americans. The American, the first Americans truly are the white people from Europe. We were not, there was no America before that. We are the native people. We are the first people. We are the indigenous people. We're not first Americans. The first Americans were Ben Franklin and George Washington and uh, all of those uh, dishonorable people who betrayed their own governments, betrayed their own countries. I mean, that's the truth, the kind of truth you can get killed for in a country like this. Funny. Yes, sir. Our time has swiftly come upon us, and I am so sorry. Because we um, really just begin to talk and do some stretch and see that our culture and your culture and your demise is parallel to Africa's demise is like a puzzle. The identical same event Every native culture around this earth has endured this. Every native culture has had to put up with it. Even when I go to France, uh, one of the things, strange things, you know, they have the Basque people down in the southern part of France who are not really not a white people at all. Uh, they, in fact, remind me a lot of Indians. They've got their own cultural center, tribal center and everything, you know, and, and they have their own language and uh, uh, their own kind of cultural kind of things. And I really like those people. If I had somebody put a gun to my head and said I had to live in Europe, I'd probably want to live among those people. But then you have the people of northern France who are actually Britannia. 
Britannians. They say they're the indigenous people up there and the French have run them out and limited this part of the world. They're always having these kinds of arguments. But when these white folks get together as a community of, uh, of colonizers, all of a sudden they're all one people. They're all one people then spreading this crap out to the rest of the world. I really have enjoyed visiting with y'all and I find it part of my responsibility as being here with you now is of taking the good hearts that I have felt here out among my own people again. And I hope that when we uh, recover our institute and we have a big dance for the celebration of uh, our victory, that uh, when we invite you, that you'll be able to come and participate with us. Uh, I hope.